Hello, everyone, and welcome back. How is everyone doing today? I hope you're all well. I hope you're all safe. Considering some of the things that are happening in various parts of the world, I definitely am hoping y'all are safe. It's been a rough week for a lot of folks. I do want to say to, to everyone who is having a rough one, uh, first of all, thank you for joining us. I know sometimes that is not easy during, you know, various parts of your life, and I promise I'm going to spend the rest of the stream trying to distract everyone from these things. Y'all, I, I hope you are safe, and uh, I, hope that <laughs> I hope that the people around you are safe as well. Um, today, we are doing uh, two additional chapters. Like I said, we're going to leave it there. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to leave it there, and I'm not going to talk about it anymore. So if you're here for a distraction, now you get it. That's it. We're done with it. Uh, Louise says, LOL, I was going to say, sidecar makes a good distraction. We try. We try, and uh, you know what else makes a good distraction, everybody? Louise the Goat Lady. Louise the Goat Lady, and you can see her name there in chat, and if you wish, you can find a link uh, straight over there. Little Bites of Homestead Life. I'm really excited for what the channel is doing over there. Um, this is something where we got talking probably six months ago, right, Louise? Yeah, we got talking about the, the, the farmstead, I think as we were playing, like, Warzone or something. And in doing so, like, we thought it would be pretty cool if there was a stream dedicated to, dedicated to, like, showing what farmsteading was like, and... Uh, well, here we have it. It's here now. Definitely go ahead and follow Luis the Goat Lady because um, those streams are, they're, they're, they're nice and small and they fit really nicely into the rest of your day, but you get to, you know, get updated on the goats and chickens, etc. Yes, and Luis is very close to affiliate. If y'all duck over there right now and then come back before we get started, I won't even be mad. If, if a bunch of y'all disappear really quick and head over there and, and drop Luis a quick follow, I'm not gonna be mad. I won't. We'll see you when you get back. <laughs> Clover has decided to occupy the closet right next to me. Clover, you know what happens, don't you? You find a good you find a good comfy spot that just happens to be tucked entirely out of the way so that nobody can see you, and then when we shut it, we don't know you're in there until you start scratching on the door 20 minutes later. Uh, Hanespi says, hi, totally new here and very excited to catch my first stream live. Well, I'm excited as well. Thanks for joining us. Um, and I think with that, it's probably about time to get started. So... Uh, a couple of things. First of all, today is going to be a longer one, and the next week is going to be even longer. Considerably, considerably longer. So, buckle up for some big ones over the next two weeks. Um, fortunately, I think that should give you plenty of time to, you know, if you're if you're watching live, or if you're just catching up on the VOD uh, later on, it should give you plenty of listening time to hang out with. This is... Of course, uh, chapter seven and eight, which means we got to talk about five and six. Uh, in chapter five, a bit of review. Chapter five, I play Pinocchio with a horse. So we have met Percy, we know a bit about Percy, um, and we've had a, frankly, a harrowing experience with Percy. Now, now he has been, I guess, rescued. He sort of brought himself out of the situation and then, and then he was picked up by some folks and now he's waking up at camp. People are wearing orange t-shirts that say Camp Half-Blood. Um, he is there with Grover, but his mother is gone. Um, being with Grover, however, uh, he starts to get a few answers, but they start to kind of trickle in for him. Um, first of all, his mother really is gone. That really did happen. Um, they're at this camp that seems to be on the north shore of Long Island, and Percy goes and meets not just the camp director, but also a familiar face, Mr. Brunner, who I still cannot 
prevent myself from desperately wanting to call him Dr. Brunner, if y'all have an idea of, of where I got that from. Uh, Pinochle, an excellent question, uh, MMP. Pinochle is a card game. Um, I do not know how to play it myself, but yeah, it is a card game that you could have multiple people. I think you have to have an even number of people. Am I correct about that? Who wants to who wants to tell MMP more in more in much greater detail than Sam ever could about Pinochle? Um, it's also oh yeah, you think you think that's odd, MMP. Uh, this is how it's spelled: P P I N O C H L E. Look how weird that word is. Um, How's it going, Iroh? Good to see you. Um, <laughs> let's see. The uh, the the appearance of Mr. Brunner is a little surprising until we find out that he goes by a different name, Chiron. C-H-I-R-O-N. Uh, an odd little encounter. And we find that Mr. D, uh, the camp director, is a pretty kind of like a grouchy, kind of curmudgeonly individual. Um, but over the course of this conversation... We get, we get one big answer that really just formulates a lot of smaller questions. Uh, and the one big answer to why is everything so weird is, I said it a bunch of times last week, so I apologize if you've heard this too many times, Greek mythology is alive and well and sort of hiding underneath everyday life. But that would explain a lot of the crazy things that have been happening to Percy um, and some of the things about Percy's past. But we don't know what precisely. Uh, we find that Mr. D is, in fact, Dionysus, the god of wine, um, uh, and con continues to have a bad attitude. Uh, in Chapter 6, Percy gets a quick sort of tour around town here, uh, around this little uh, summer camp. We find that there are a lot of satyrs, like uh, like Grover is, so a lot of these, you know, half-goat individuals. Um, bees, these people are um, sort of like hanging out alongside, but it seems like they sort of answer directly to uh, Mr. D. Um, it seems like they, they might be even like kind of like camp staff in a way. Um, we know that Grover has some... Some ideas, some 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 plans, but we don't know precisely what. Um, and we, of course, meet Annabeth. Uh, Annabeth is here uh, one chapter earlier, but we really, really meet her in this chapter. Um, and we also meet someone named Clarice, uh, who is going to be. Uh, it seems a at least a very at, at the very least a short term antagonist. Um, and in a way. Percy can kind of thank her for the appearance of some pretty radical abilities. Um, now, he doesn't know how to control them. He doesn't know where they come from. He doesn't know what happens precisely. All he knows is that he's getting bullied by Clarice, and then all of a sudden, water is shooting out of pipes and, uh, like, you know, spraying Clarice out of the way. Uh, everyone is soaked, and Clarice is, well, Percy's fine, but Clarice is fuming. Um... Basically, we find out about the different cabins. Uh, it seems that there are 12 cabins, sort of one for each of the major gods of the Greek pantheon, and part of the strange thing is that they're not sort of equally distributed. Um, Percy's not totally sure why, but, you know, a few some of these cabins are totally empty, and yet cabin 11 is packed. Um, why not redistribute them a little bit? Well, who knows? Um, but we get a bit of an idea from Annabeth. Um, some some hints. It seems that Percy's life has sort of been leading him to this moment in a way. Um, Percy is 
well, he's got these ideas about himself, uh, uh, about his own, about qualities that he would consider negative. Um, things like his ADHD and dyslexia. And Annabeth starts to lay some things out for Percy. The dyslexia isn't just, you know, a, a, a reading disorder. This is... This is your brain being hardwired for ancient Greek. Um, the ADHD, you're impulsive and you can't sit still. It's not just you, like, unable to compete with sort of everyday life. It's your battlefield reflexes. Um, you are something... Well, you're something a little different than a regular mortal. You're half-blood. We don't know exactly what that means, because that is the point at which we are interrupted by Clarice. But um, at the end of this, Annabeth is pretty seriously considering uh, Percy Jackson a, a a solid contender and proclaims she does indeed want him on her team for Capture the Flag, which is coming up soon. And with that, everyone, with that... I believe it's time for us to move into our chapter. Uh, Charlie Clear, you are precisely on time, Charlie, and welcome. I believe that's a new name I haven't seen in here before, so it is great to see you. Um, uh, by the way, Ryad Trip, thank you very much for the follow. Uh, everyone who's just joining us right now, thank you very much, and uh, I, <laughs> I appreciate it. Welcome to Scooter Patrol, and I hope you have a fantastic time. Yep, Hen, you are... Exactly on time. I, I assume someone in Discord let you know what we did yesterday. <laughs> anyway, uh, I hope you're doing well. And I hope everyone is doing well. Go ahead, eat a bad bean. But, y'all, it's time. Let's do it. Um, let's see. Here we go. Percy Jackson and the Olympians, The Lightning Thief. Chapter 7. My Dinner Goes Up in Smoke. Word of the bathroom incident spread immediately. Wherever I went, campers pointed at me and murmured something about toilet water. Or maybe they were just staring at Annabeth, who was still pretty much dripping wet. She showed me a few more places. The metal shop, where kids were forging their own swords. The arts and crafts room, where satyrs were sandblasting a giant marble statue of a goat man. And the climbing wall, which actually consisted of two facing walls that shook violently, dropped boulders, sprayed lava, and clashed together if you didn't get to the top fast enough. Finally, we returned to the canoeing lake, where the trail led back to the cabins. I've got training to do, Annabeth said flatly. Dinner's at 7.30. Just follow your cabin to the mess hall. Annabeth, I'm sorry about the toilets. Whatever. It wasn't my fault. She looked at me skeptically, and I realized it was my fault. I'd made water shoot out of the bathroom fixtures. I didn't understand how, but the toilets had responded to me. I... I had become one with the plumbing. You need to talk to the Oracle, Annabeth said. Oh? Not who. What? The Oracle. I'll ask Chiron. I stared into the lake, wishing somebody would give me a straight answer for once. I wasn't expecting anybody to be 
looking back at me from the bottom, so my heart skipped a beat when I noticed two teenage girls sitting cross-legged at the base of the pier, about 20 feet below. They wore blue jeans and shimmering green t-shirts, and their brown hair floated loose around their shoulders as minnows darted in and out. They smiled and waved as if I were a long-lost friend. I didn't know what else to do, so I waved back. Don't encourage them, Annabeth warned. Nyads are terrible flirts. Nyads, I repeated, feeling completely overwhelmed. That's it. I want to go home now. Annabeth frowned. Don't you get it, Percy? You are home. This is the only safe place on Earth for kids like us. You mean mentally disturbed kids? I mean, not human. Not totally human, anyway. Half human. Half human and half what? I think you know. I didn't want to admit it, but I was afraid I did. I felt a tingling in my limbs, a sensation I sometimes felt when my mom talked about my dad. God? I said. Half God? Annabeth nodded. Your father isn't dead, Percy. He's one of the Olympians. That's... that's crazy. Is it? What's the most common thing gods did in the old stories? They ran around falling in love with humans and having kids with them. You think they've changed their habits in the last few millennia? But those are just... I almost said myths again, then I remembered Chiron's warning that in 2,000 years I might be considered a myth. But if, if all the kids here are half-gods... Demigods, Annabeth said. That's the official term. Or half-bloods. And who's your dad? Her hands tightened around the pier railing. I got the feeling I just trespassed on a sensitive subject. My dad is a professor at West Point, she said. I haven't seen him since I was very small. He teaches American history. He's human. What? You assume it has to be a male god who finds a female human attractive? How sexist is that? Okay, who's your mom, then? Cabin six. Meaning? Annabeth straightened. Athena. Goddess of wisdom and battle. Okay, I thought. Why not? And my dad? Undetermined, Annabeth said. Like I told you before, nobody knows. Well, she had my mother. She knew. Maybe not, Percy. Gods don't always reveal their identities. My dad would have. He loved her. Annabeth gave me a cautious look. She didn't want to burst my bubble. Maybe you're right. Maybe he'll send a sign. That's the only way to know for sure. Your father has to send you a sign claiming you as his son. Sometimes it happens. You mean sometimes it doesn't? Annabeth ran her palm along the rail. The gods are busy. They have a lot of kids, and they don't always... Well, sometimes they don't care about us, Percy. 
They ignore us. I thought about some of the kids I'd seen in the Hermes cabin. Teenagers who looked sullen and depressed as if they were waiting for a call that would never come. I'd known kids like that at Yancey Academy, shuffled off to boarding schools by rich parents who didn't have the time to deal with them. But gods should behave better. So I'm stuck here, I said. That's it? For the rest of my life? It depends, Annabeth said. Some campers only stay the summer. If you're a child of Aphrodite or Demeter, you're probably not a real powerful force. The monsters might ignore you, so you can get by with a few months of summer training and live in the mortal world the rest of the year. But for some of us, it's too dangerous to leave. We're year-rounders. In the mortal world, we attract monsters. They sense us. They come to challenge us. Most of the time, they'll ignore us until we're old enough to cause trouble, about 10 or 11 years old, but after that... Most demigods either make their way here, or they get killed off. A few manage to survive in the outside world and become famous. Believe me, if I told you the names, you'd know them. Some don't even realize that they're demigods. But very, very few are like that. So, monsters can't get in here. Annabeth shook her head. Not unless they're intentionally stalked in the woods, or specially summoned by someone on the inside. Why would anybody want to summon a monster? Practical jokes. Practice fights. Practical jokes. The point is, the borders are sealed to keep mortals and monsters out. From the outside, mortals look into the valley and see nothing unusual. Just a strawberry farm. So, you're a year-rounder. Annabeth nodded. From under the collar of her t-shirt, she pulled a leather necklace with five clay beads of different colors. It was just like Luke's, except Annabeth also had a big gold ring strung on it, like a college ring. I've been here since I was seven, she said. Every August, on the last day of summer session, you get a bead for surviving another year. I've been here longer than most of the counselors, and they're all in college. So why did you come so young? She twisted the ring on her necklace. None of your business. Oh. I stood there for a minute, in uncomfortable silence. So I could just walk out of here right now if I wanted to. It would be suicide, but you could. With Mr. D or Chiron's permission but they wouldn't give permission until the end of the summer session, unless... Unless? Unless you were granted a quest, but that hardly ever happens. The last time... Her voice trailed off. I could tell from her tone that the last time hadn't gone well. Back in the sick room, I said, when you were feeding me that stuff... Ambrosia. Yeah, you, you said something about the summer solstice. Annabeth's shoulders tensed. So you do know something? Well, no. Back back in my old school, I overheard Grover and Chiron talking about it. Grover mentioned the summer solstice. He said something like, we didn't have much time because of the deadline. What did that mean? She clenched her fists. 
I wish I knew. Chiron and the satyrs, they know, but they won't tell me. Something's wrong in Olympus. Something pretty major. Last time I was there, everything seemed so normal. You've been to Olympus? Some of us year-rounders, Luke and Clarice and I and a few others, we took a field trip during winter solstice. That's when the gods have their big annual council. But how did you get there? The Long Island Railroad, of course. You get off at Penn Station. Empire State Building, special elevator to the 600th floor. She looked at me like she was sure I must know this already. You are a New Yorker, right? Well, sure. As far as I knew, there were only 102 floors in the Empire State Building, but I decided not to point that out. Right after we visited, Annabeth continued, the weather got weird, as if the gods had started fighting. A couple of times since, I've heard satyrs talking. The best I can figure is that something important was stolen, and if it isn't returned by summer solstice, there's going to be trouble. When you came, I was hoping... I mean, Athena can get along with just about anybody, except for Ares. And of course, she's got the rivalry with Poseidon, but I mean, aside from that, I thought maybe we could work together. I thought you might know something. I shook my head. I wished I could help her, but I felt too hungry and tired and mentally overloaded to ask any more questions. I've got to get a quest, Annabeth murmured to herself. I'm not too young. If they would just tell me the problem. I could smell barbecue smoke coming from somewhere nearby. Annabeth must have heard my stomach growl. She told me to go on. She'd catch me later. I left her on the pier, tracing her finger across the rail as if drawing a battle plan. Back at cabin 11, everybody was talking and horsing around, waiting for dinner. For the first time, I noticed that a lot of the campers had similar features. Sharp noses, upturned eyebrows, mischievous smiles. They were all the kinds of kids that teachers would peg as troublemakers. Thankfully, nobody paid much attention to me as I walked over to my spot on the floor and plopped down with my minotaur horn. The counselor, Luke, came over. He had the Hermes family resemblance, too. It was marred by that scar on his right cheek, but his smile was intact. Yeah, I found you a sleeping bag, he said. Here, I stole you some toiletries from the camp store. I couldn't tell if he was kidding about the stealing part. I said, thanks. Yeah, no problem. Luke sat next to me, pushing his back against the wall. Oh, tough first day. I don't belong here, I said. I don't even believe in gods. Yeah, he said. That's how we all started. Once you start believing in them, it doesn't get any easier. The bitterness in his voice surprised me, because Luke seemed like a pretty easygoing guy. He looked like he could handle just about anything. So, is your dad Hermes? He pulled the switchblade out of his back pocket, and for a second I thought he was going to gut me, but he just scraped the mud off the sole of his sandal. Yeah, Hermes. The wing-footed messenger guy? That's him. Messengers, medicine, travelers, merchants, thieves, anybody who uses the roads. 
That's why you're here, enjoying Cabin Eleven's hospitality. Hermes isn't picky about who he sponsors. I figured Luke didn't mean to call me a nobody. He just had a lot on his mind. Do you ever meet your dad? I said. Once. I waited, thinking that if he wanted to tell me, he would tell me. Apparently he didn't. I wondered if the story had anything to do with how he got his scar. Luke looked up and managed to smile. Hey, don't worry about it, Percy. The campers here, they're mostly good people. After all, we're extended family, right? We take care of each other. He seemed to understand how lost I felt. And I was grateful for that, because an older guy like him, even if he was a counselor, should have steered clear of an uncool middle schooler like me. But Luke had welcomed me into the cabin. He'd even stolen me some toiletries, which was the nicest thing anybody had done for me all day. I decided to ask him my last big question. The one that had been bothering me all afternoon. Clarice from Ares was joking about me being Big Three material. And Annabeth, twice she said that I might be the one. She said I should talk to the Oracle. What was that all about? Luke folded his knife. I hate prophecies. What do you mean? His face twitched around the scar. Let's just say I messed things up for everybody else. The last two years, ever since my trip to the Garden of the Hesperides went sour, Chiron hasn't allowed any more quests. Annabeth's been dying to get out into the world. She pestered Chiron so much he finally told her he already knew her fate. He'd had a prophecy from the Oracle. He wouldn't tell her the whole thing, but he said that Annabeth wasn't destined to go on a quest yet. She had to wait until somebody special came into the camp. Somebody special? Hey, don't worry about it, kid, Luke said. Annabeth wants to think every new camper who comes here is the omen she's been waiting for. Now, come on, it's dinner time. The moment he said it, a horn blew in the distance. Somehow, I knew it was a conch shell, even though I'd never heard one before. Luke yelled, Eleven, fall in! The whole cabin, about twenty of us, filed into the commons yard. We lined up in order of seniority, so of course I was dead last. Campers came from the other cabins too, except for the three empty cabins at the end. And cabin eight, which had looked normal in the daytime, but was now starting to glow silver as the sun went down. We marched up the hill to the mess hall pavilion. Satyrs joined us from the meadow. Naiads emerged from the canoeing lake. A few other girls came out of the woods. And when I say out of the woods, I mean straight out of the woods. I saw one girl, about nine or ten years old, melt from the side of a maple tree and come skipping up the hill. In all, there were about maybe a hundred campers, a few dozen satyrs, and a dozen assorted wood nymphs and naiads. At the pavilion... Torches blazed around the marble columns. A central fire burned in a bronze brazier the size of a bathtub. Each cabin had its own table, covered in white cloth trimmed in purple. Four of the tables were empty, but cabin 11's was way overcrowded. I had to squeeze to the edge of a bench with half my butt hanging off. I saw Grover sitting at table 12 with Mr. D, a few satyrs and a couple of plump blonde boys who looked just like Mr. D. Chiron stood to one side a picnic table being way too small for a centaur. 
Annabeth sat at table six, with a bunch of serious-looking athletic kids, all with her gray eyes and honey-blonde hair. Clarice sat behind me at Ares's table. She'd apparently gotten over being hosed down because she was laughing and belching right alongside her friends. Finally, Chiron pounded his hoof against the marble floor of the pavilion and everyone fell silent. He raised a glass. To the gods! Everyone else raised their glasses. To the gods! Wood nymphs came forward with platters of food. Grapes, apples, strawberries, cheese, fresh bread, and yes, barbecue. My glass was empty, but Luke said, Well, speak to it. Whatever you want. Non-alcoholic, of course. I said, Cherry Coke? The glass filled with sparkling caramel liquid. Then I had an idea. Blue Cherry Coke. The soda turned a violet shade of cobalt. I took a cautious sip. Perfect. I drank a toast to my mother. She's not gone, I told myself. Not permanently, anyway. She's in the underworld. And if that's a real place, then someday. Here you go, Percy. Luke said, handing me a platter of smoked brisket. I loaded my plate, and I was about to take a big bite when I noticed everyone getting up, carrying their plates toward the fire in the center of the pavilion. I wondered if they were going for dessert or something. Come on, Luke told me. As I got closer, I saw that everyone was taking a portion of their meal and dropping it into the fire. The ripest strawberry, the juiciest slice of beef, the warmest, most buttery roll. Luke murmured in my ear, uh, burnt offerings for the gods. They like the smell. You're kidding. His look warned me not to take this lightly, but I couldn't help wondering why an immortal, all-powerful being would like the smell of burning food. Luke approached the fire, bowed his head, and tossed in a cluster of fat red grapes. Hermes. I was next. I wished I knew what God's name to say. Finally, I made a silent plea. Whoever you are, tell me, please. And I scraped a big slice of brisket into the flames. When I caught a whiff of the smoke, I didn't gag. It smelled nothing like burning food. It smelled of hot chocolate and fresh-baked brownies. Hamburgers on the grill and wildflowers and a hundred other good things that couldn't have gone well together, but did. I could almost believe the gods could live off that smoke. When everybody had returned to their seats and finished eating their meals, Chiron pounded his hoof again for our attention. Mr. D got up with a huge sigh. Eh, uh, okay. Yeah, I suppose I should say hello. To all of you brats, well, hello. Our activities director, Chiron, says that the next capture the flag is Friday. Cabin 5 presently holds the laurels. A bunch of ugly cheering arose from the Aries table. Personally, Mr. D continued, I couldn't care less, but congratulations. 
Also, I should tell you, we got a new camper today, Peter Johnson. Karen murmured something. Uh, yeah, uh, Percy Jackson, Mr. D corrected. That's right, hurrah, all that. Now, run along to your silly campfire. Go on. Everybody cheered. We all headed down toward the amphitheater where Apollo's cabin let us sing along. We sang camp songs about the gods and ate s'mores and joked around, and the funny thing was, I didn't feel like anyone was staring at me anymore. I felt like I was home. Later in the evening, when the sparks from the campfire were curling into a starry sky, the conch horn blew again, and we all filed back to our cabins. I didn't realize how exhausted I was until I collapsed into my borrowed sleeping bag. My fingers curled around the Minotaur's horn. I thought about my mom, but I had a good thought. Her smile. The bedtime stories she would read to me when I was a kid, the way she would tell me not to let the bedbugs bite. When I closed my eyes, I fell asleep instantly. That was my first day at Camp Half-Blood. I wish I'd known how briefly I would get to enjoy my new home. And here we are, at the end of our first chapter for the evening. Everyone, I want to thank you very much. Thank you very much for being here. Uh, I want to thank you to our artists, of course, who have contributed a bunch of art for today. Uh, it is fantastic, and I really appreciate everyone who has selected that artist tag. Um, Y'all, I would say one thing to, to be clear about there is don't feel pressured to, like, jump in. Uh, if you want to, you know, take the art tag and, you know, I'll be putting in uh, requests every week. I have actually got mine all set up, so I'm going to be putting them in. Uh, basically, these are the next two weeks of um, art suggestions. These are things that... Like I said, if y'all are interested in, in jumping in on this, that is something that would be, you know, fantastic. We would love to see your art, and I really appreciate everyone who has jumped in already. Uh, I'm going to try and stay, you know, stay up to date on that and try to be about two weeks ahead so y'all have plenty of time if you want to jump in. But, yeah, this is not a this is not a high-pressure thing. If, if one of these things inspires you and you want to jump in, go for it. Otherwise, yeah, maybe just keep an eye on the artist tag, and if you see something that, that crosses your path that you really like, jump on in. But I really appreciate everyone who has jumped on the art so far. We do have a channel for that. And for everyone who is perhaps confused about who we are, what we are doing here, my name is Sam. This is Sidecar Stories. And today is Thursday, which means this is Flying Sidecar. Uh, this is a voice actor's venture through some stories that we all love. And if you want to know more, you can find more at the links here below. Um, this is the perfect link if you want to share this show around with folks. And I know some folks have been doing that already. I appreciate that a ton. A ton. I appreciate that. Y'all, we've got a break coming up. But before that, we got to talk about this chapter a little bit. We're going to talk about it more after the break. But for right now, let me just get you set up with a chatter break question. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about it. Uh, I'll do a little bit of review just for people that are just catching up. And I'll, I'll tell you what happened in the chapter that we just read. And then we'll read our second chapter for the night, which is a pretty long one. Just be ye forewarned. Uh, so we're going to try and roll on pretty quickly. Uh, Charlie Clear says, I love the chapter names. Uh, as do I. It's part of this overall um, experience of tone, uh, and if you would like to take a look at some of our main ideas, you can see it right here. That is uh, that is one of our, our sort of tone and style elements here. Um, you know, if, if we think about how they could have organized these chapters, we think about, like, 
the chapter titles in The Hobbit, for instance, uh, which are pretty descriptive of like what is going to happen, um, just from a sort of third person perspective, kind of a kind of a quiet like uh, so so. Uh, Sander, an excellent question. The name of... I'll just run through all the chapter names really quick. Chapter 1, I accidentally vaporized my pre-algebra teacher. Chapter 2, three old ladies knit the socks of death. Chapter 3, Grover unexpectedly loses his pants. Chapter 4, my mother teaches me bullfighting. Chapter 5, I play pinochle with a horse. Chapter 6, I become supreme lord of the bathroom. And chapter 7, the one that we just read, my dinner goes up in smoke. This is... Not the way that we typically see chapters done, right? Either we see some, either we just see numbers, or in something like The Hobbit, we see like Overhill and Underhill, or an unexpected uh, party, or, well, stuff like that. Anyway, the the point being that this is kind of an element of getting all of this from Percy's perspective directly. And I think it's a really cool switch up to have, right? We spent so much time sort of over Harry's shoulder in Harry Potter. We spent, you know, we're, we're spending time kind of uh, slightly more removed, but over Bilbo's shoulder in The Hobbit. You know, we, we see things from, from Nick Carraway's perspective, but it's about somebody else. This is one of the first real experiences, other than maybe Frankenstein, that we've read here on the channel, that it's very centered on the protagonist's own perspective. And yeah, the the, the chapter titles really speak to that. It's all very focused on what is going through Percy's mind. It's part of this internal monologue. And uh, I, I think that that idea of, of our protagonist and this internal monologue, um, I don't believe so, Gwendog. I don't think that there were. I don't remember there being chapter titles in Harry Potter. Am I totally wonked out about that? Ooh, baby, I could be. I read I read over a million words in that series, and I can't remember whether or not it has chapter titles. I wanted to say it was just the chapter numbers. That's how I remember it. You're right. Number four, Privet Drive, was the name of the very first chapter. Yeah, absolutely. Oof. Oof. What's the point? Why are we here? <laughs> I can't remember these. It, it, okay. All right, Gwen Dog. Uh, I would say... Helpful but harsh, Gwen. <laughs> I did indeed always forget to change them. <laughs> you're you're absolutely right, though. Yes. Okay. So I did a big goof him up. I will. I will, however, say I will. I will reinforce that these these chapter titles are very much from Percy's own perspective. Still, you know what? I'm not going to cut it. I'm not even going to give myself a, a signal to remind myself to cut it, because I think if I've done a big goof him up, I deserve. I deserve to get harshed, but look, just keep it in the comments for this video. Don't harsh me elsewhere. That's it. That's it. That's the only place. Gwen Dog is absolutely right. <laughs> it's because I, it's cause I can never keep them all straight, and I never remember to change them. Uh, that's why, as you may have noticed, I've just gone to the, the chapter numbers for this one. Look, not important, not important. Um, but this 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 sense of perspective, I know we've talked about it a bit before. All these chapter titles, are these aren't just like you know, uh, observations about what's coming up. These are directly through Percy's eyes. Um, and I think, you know what? As you're rolling through these, um, we've got this perspective from Percy that he he is really struggling to, to get clear answers from people, right? We've seen him express that much in a very uh, explicit way. He just wants straight answers from somebody. We get the big question, right? The big question that we know has been coming um, and the big question that Percy has had for probably his entire life. Right here at the edge of the fire in chapter 7. Whoever you are, tell me, please. And I think that is our, that's going to be our chapter break question. Um, our chapter break question is, who is it? But more importantly, what is that going to mean for Percy here? What would the implications be? So... 
That's our Chatterbrite question. Who is going to answer Percy's call? And what's that going to mean for Percy here moving forward? That's what I want to know. I will see you all in five, and we'll talk about it at some greater depth. Y'all, it's been fantastic already. I will see you in five. Bye-bye. And we are back, everyone. Supin is wondering what chapter we are on. Well, Supin, we have just completed chapter seven. We are moving on to chapter eight in a moment here, but not before we've talked about it, certainly. Certainly not. It is indeed Tempting Secrets by Kevin MacLeod. Um, I, I put the link up there. That is the music that we have been listening to there. Kevin MacLeod, once again, uh, has joined with a greater, uh, I should say, a, a larger site, a, a larger community of um, producers for this sort of thing. Filmmusic.io, F-I-L-M-M-U-S-I-C.io. And uh, this group of people, they make uh, stuff that you can specifically license with Creative Commons to include in stuff like this. So uh, a fantastic group of folks. Um, and Kevin McLeod, I would say, is kind of one of the, the, the biggest folks who has done this. Um, his work has been featured in like countless videos on the internet, but also movies like i want to say tintin uh i want to i want to say that they had their their um <laughs> uh some of their score was done by him uh they they pulled some music for for uh the movie tintin uh Rowlett says weird there aren't so many stories about zeus falling in love with different humans uh oh excuse me weird aren't there so many stories about zeus falling in love with different humans uh falling in love would be maybe a bold way to say it i would say it is it is the safe way to say it here um perhaps falling in love in certain instances but very very often uh yes uh having children with uh we know that there is lots of there there's lots of discussion about that in history Rowlett says do we know if there are kids at zeus's table yet i find it hard to believe that there aren't and it does seem pretty strange right some of this stuff is kind of strange our chatterbrite question was of course who do we think is going to answer percy's call Percy's call of, hey, uh, just let me know who you are. Let me know, like, who, who who are you? Who should I be addressing here? Uh, which God is it that I'm connected to? Um, and more importantly, what will that mean for Percy? What will that, what will the importance of that be uh, as time goes on? So let's see, let's see what y'all have been talking about here. Rowlett says it's going to be Poseidon, very confidently. Louise is maybe echoing that with who are the water gods? An excellent question. Um, it, it seems that way, and I'm starting to pick up a trend that you've got sort of maybe an idea, perhaps, of uh, the sort of manifestations that have been in Percy's life. You know, what, what things go wonky around Percy. For me, for instance, I know that if I'm a demigod, it must be some sort of tech god because it is the stream that so often goes wonky around me. Either that or like a god of, of memory or something. I don't know. Iroh says maybe Zeus. An excellent question because like, like we were talking about, Zeus does have many stories like this. Rowlett saying, I think once he knows who his father is, it will help him figure out what his strengths are and how to properly access them. Um, yeah, and Charlie Clear saying sort of like after the water from the bathroom, I think it'll be Poseidon. Yeah, how to how to access some of the things that seem to be an inherent part of himself. And this is one of the things that we've been seeing is a big internal conflict for Percy, right? He is looking at the world thinking like, I am this way. It seems pretty negative to me so far, but I'm hearing these things about how it's like battlefield instincts or hardwired to read ancient Greek. Am, is this stuff really going to be helpful for me? Is there any upside to this? Well, maybe there is. 
Maybe there is after all. Rowlet also says, I think their friendship will help change things. Maybe not between the gods, but maybe amongst the demigods. Um, yeah, there is, there's definitely some god rivalry that has seeped between the demigods. It does seem like there is, like, I think Clarice is the best example of this, right? Clarice is, has definitely taken on that antagonistic attitude of her father, Ares, god of war. Um, you, you can't be surprised by these sorts of things, frankly. Um, it is... <laughs> it is not to be, it is not unexpected. Um, but yeah, Dryer the Titan says, no kids at Zeus. And it doesn't seem like Zeus is the only one. Uh, something about these big three, it seems like, you know, if anything, like, maybe some of these kids in Cabin 11 are, you know, it's, it's, it's so strange that there would be so many in Cabin 11 just sort of picking up, not knowing who their parents are. And then none at some of these, like, very, shall we say, active... Uh, God's cabins. Very, very strange. And Gems has brought up an interesting point. Maybe Zeus doesn't claim them. And by the way, Gems, hello. I hope you're doing well. And to all of Gems' students, hello. How y'all doing? Welcome back, everybody. It's been great to see you. Uh, I've had a lot of fun talking to you over on YouTube <laughs> uh, in the comments. So, uh, y'all, I appreciate you hanging out with me. That's fantastic. And Gems, of course, thank you for uh, thank you for introducing me around. I think that's wonderful. Uh, Supin says, Hephaestus! Is that, your, is that your, your godparent? Or do you think that's Percy's godparent? God space parent, not godparent, I guess. I don't know. It's hard to tell, right? Because when, because Shotzi, when you, when you wrote godparent, I was like, Okay, like godfather or godmother, but no, in this case, it's literal, literally a mother who is a god or a father who is a god. Um, <laughs> look, I think we can all feel a little bit like Percy here in that we've got sort of like a big answer and then no real clear answers about like how things actually work in this world, right? We get the, we get the big answer of like, yeah, Greek gods. Doesn't that sort of, doesn't that clear things up? And Percy's like, I mean, not really, right? Rowlett says, lol, since there are old rivalries, grudges, etc. between gods, I'm sure that it's passed down. So given Percy is Poseidon's kid, not confirmed yet, but perhaps, him being friends with Annabeth uh, and even going on a quest together, like Jem said, would at least show that the demigods and the counselors slash managers, that these, over, uh, that these rivalries and grudges and such can be overcome. And how important is that, right? Not just, not just for people who are... Um, who are like half god themselves, but you know people who people who are involved or find these gods important in their lives. You know, if we sort of rewind to ancient Greece, you know, if 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 we got into like some crazy, some crazy rivalry system between the different faiths people follow, that would get pretty dark, right? Let's not do that, huh? <laughs> uh, Mirden says. <laughs> Is per is Percy Jackson gonna turn into Mamma Mia? <laughs> you know what? I think it probably is, huh? <laughs> I like that a lot, Mirden. Um, uh, here we go again. Uh, I believe Pierce Brosnan was in Mamma Mia and also played Doctor Brunner. I did it! I did it! I called him Doctor Brunner. Uh, also played Mister Brunner in the movie version. I want to say that's a thing, right? So maybe, maybe it already is. Maybe. <gasps> The call has been coming from inside the house. It was... <laughs> Percy Jackson was Mamma Mia the whole time. Uh, Tuna says, how much God do you need to go to this camp? What if I'm like one quarter God? An excellent question, because one quarter God is still a lot more God than most people walking around, right? Um, 
Yeah, like like what if what if one of your parents was a demigod? That's that's a quarter god right there. That is a, that is quite enough. Unless it is only demigods that have these sort of particular qualities. I got to wonder. I also have to wonder, you know, like what if what if two demigods uh have a child? What happens then? See, this is the th- this is the thing and this is the the experience that Percy's having right now. Having the one big answer does not do so much for us on an individual level. We need more. We need more specific answers and more clear answers if we're really going to feel like we're sort of on top of this. Because right now, it seems like the one big answer has brought up a lot more questions than it's helped, right? So, we shall have to see. We shall hope that things clear up for us a bit. Everyone, thank you so much for being here. Again, my name is Sam. This is Sidecar Stories. And we are reading Percy Jackson and the Olympians, The Lightning Thief. So, chapter seven. A quick review before we move on to our second and final chapter for the night. Um, Chapter seven is, of course, uh, my dinner goes up in smoke. Um, We see a bit more of the camp. Uh, You know, Percy is being led around by Annabeth. Uh, They see the metal shop. They see the arts and crafts room, the climbing wall, uh, the canoeing lake. We find out that there are uh, dryads and naiads, you know, uh, water spirits and and woodland spirits. and something about the Oracle. Uh, it's all kind of confusing, but I would say in the first half, basically, we spend it with Annabeth. And in the second half, we kind of spend it with Luke slash the camp at large. The first half with Annabeth. We learned that she is, uh, you know, she, she tells us a bit more. We learned that uh, her mother is Athena, the goddess of wisdom and battle. And her father uh, teaches uh, history at West Point. Um, uh, she is waiting for something. She's waiting for something to happen, possibly something like this chosen one. She's not willing to elaborate on it right now. Um, but as we as we sort of learn more about the camp and really get it confirmed, like, yeah, this whole this place's whole thing is it's full of demigods, half gods, um, folks whose parents are one of the gods of the Greek pantheon and live here in the world. Um it doesn't seem like gods are necessarily great parents all the time. Um, Annabeth says, quote, The gods are busy. They have lots of kids and they don't always, well, sometimes they don't care about us, Percy. They ignore us. That does not seem ideal, right? Um, but at the very least, this ha- it sounds like this has been Annabeth's experience with it. So, um, as we as we move on, we're getting this idea that Annabeth is kind of waiting for something and it doesn't involve mom. It doesn't seem like. Um... Well, what could it be? As we spend a little bit of time with Luke, uh, as we approach dinner and we're, we're learning a bit more about Luke, um, it seems like there's something going a little wonky in Olympus. Something's a little off there. Uh, and Annabeth, Annabeth thinks that maybe this is kind of her opportunity to get a quest. It seems like Luke might have been the one who was responsible for there not being any quests handed out right now. It seems like he kind of goofed something up recently. Uh, well, recently, two years ago. And nobody's been allowed on a quest since. Um... It seems there's been some sort of prophecy from the Oracle that Annabeth has told Percy he's got to go check out. Um, This is all super confusing, Uh, not just for us, but for Percy as well. So if you're having a hard time holding on to this rodeo, don't worry about it. Uh, Hopefully it will start to become more and more clear over time. Um, But... uh Finally, uh, we find that the camp is sort of performing this ritual around dinner in which they go ahead and burn some offering, you know, the best part of whatever dinner they've collected here. They burn some of it for for their their sort of patron, matron, for their for their godparent. <laughs> um, 
And in doing so, uh, that smoke kind of carries up to Olympus and the gods love it, I guess. But Percy doesn't know who he's even burning this stuff for. As we've talked about, it's going to mean something big for Percy when he's got a better understanding, but we don't know yet. Maybe we shall find out in Chapter 8. We capture a flag. The next few days, I settled into a routine that almost felt normal, if you don't count the fact that I was getting lessons from satyrs, nymphs, and a centaur. Each morning, I took ancient Greek from Annabeth, and we talked about the gods and goddesses in the present tense, which was kind of weird. I discovered Annabeth was right about my dyslexia. Ancient Greek wasn't hard for me to read, at least no harder than English. After a couple of mornings, I could stumble through a few lines of Homer without too much headache. The rest of the day, I'd rotate through outdoor activities, looking for something I was good at. Chiron tried to teach me archery, but we found out pretty quick I wasn't any good with a bow. He didn't complain, even when he had to de-snag an arrow out of his tail. Foot racing? No good either. The wood nymph instructors left me in the dust. They told me not to worry about it. They'd had centuries of practice running away from lovesick gods. But still, it was a little humiliating to be slower than a tree. And wrestling? Forget it. Every time I got onto the mat, Clarice would pulverize me. There's more where that came from, punk! She'd bumble in my ear. The only thing I really excelled at was canoeing, and that wasn't the kind of heroic skill people expected to see from the kid who had beaten the Minotaur. I knew the senior campers and counselors were watching me, trying to decide who my dad was, but they weren't having an easy time of it. I wasn't as strong as the Ares kids, or as good at archery as the Apollo kids. I did not have Hephaestus' skill with metalwork, or, God forbid, Dionysus' way with vine plants. Luke told me I might be a child of Hermes, a kind of jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none. But I got the feeling he was just trying to make me feel better. He really didn't know what to make of me either. Despite all of this, I liked camp. I got used to the morning fog over the beach, the smell of hot strawberry fields in the afternoon, even the weird noises of monsters in the woods at night. I would eat dinner with Cabin Eleven, scrape part of my meal into the fire, and try to feel some connection to my real dad. Nothing came. Just that warm feeling I'd always had, like the memory of his smile. I tried not to think too much about my mom, but I kept wondering. If gods and monsters were real, if all of this magical stuff was possible, surely there was some way to save her, to bring her back. I started to understand Luke's bitterness and how he seemed to resent his father, Hermes. So, okay, maybe gods had important things to do, but couldn't they call once in a while, or thunder, or something? Dionysus could make Diet Coke appear out of thin air. Why couldn't my dad, whoever he was, make a phone appear? Thursday afternoon, three days after I'd arrived at Camp Half-Blood, was my first sword-fighting lesson. Everybody from Cabin 11 gathered in the big circular arena, where Luke would be our instructor. We started with basic stabbing and slashing, using some straw-stuffed dummies and Greek armor. I guess I did okay. 
At least I understood what I was supposed to do and my reflexes were good. The problem was I couldn't find a blade that felt right in my hands. Either they were too heavy or too light or too long. Luke tried his best to fix me up, but he agreed that none of the practice blades seemed to work for me. We moved on to dueling in pairs. Luke announced that he would be my partner, since this was my first time. Hey, good luck, one of the campers told me. Luke's the best swordsman we've had in about 300 years. Uh, well, maybe it'll go easy on me, I said. The camper snorted. Luke showed me thrusts and parries and shield blocks the hard way. With every swipe, I got a little more battered and bruised. Keep your guard up, Percy, he'd say, and then whap me in the ribs with the flat side of his blade. Nope, not that far up. Whap. Lunge. Whap. Now back. Whap. Every time he called a break, I was soaked in sweat. Everybody swarmed the drinks cooler. Luke poured ice water on his head, which looked like a good idea, so I did the same. Instantly, I felt better. Strength surged back into my arms. The sword didn't feel so awkward. All right, everybody, circle up, Luke ordered. If Percy doesn't mind, I want to give you all a little demo. Great, I thought. Let's all watch Percy get pounded. The Hermes guys gathered around. They were suppressing smiles. I figured they'd been in my shoes before and couldn't wait to see how Luke used me for a punching bag. He told everybody he was going to demonstrate a disarming technique. How to twist the enemy's blade with the flat of your own sword so that he had no choice but to drop his weapon. All right, now this is difficult, he stressed. I've had it used against me. No laughing at Percy now. Most swordsmen have got to work years to master this technique. He demonstrated the move to me in slow motion. Sure enough, the sword clattered out of my hand. All right. Now, in real time, he said, after I'd retrieved my weapon. We keep sparring until one of us pulls it off. You ready, Percy? I nodded, and Luke came after me. Somehow I kept him from getting a shot in at the hilt of my sword. My senses opened up. I saw his attacks coming. I countered. I stepped forward and tried a thrust of my own. Luke deflected it easy, but I saw a change in his face. His eyes narrowed, and he started to press me with more force. The sword grew heavy in my hand. The balance wasn't right. I knew it was only a matter of seconds before Luke took me down, so I figured, what the heck? I tried the disarming maneuver. My blade hit the base of Luke's, and I twisted, putting my whole weight into a downward thrust. Clang. Luke's sword rattled against the stones. The tip of my blade was an inch from his undefended chest. The other campers were silent. I lowered my sword. I'm sorry. For a moment, Luke was too stunned to speak. Sorry. His scarred face broke into a grin. By the gods, Percy, why are you sorry? Show me that again. I didn't want to. The short burst of manic energy had completely abandoned me, but Luke insisted. This time there was no contest. The moment our swords connected, Luke hit my hilt and sent my weapon skidding across the floor. After a long pause, somebody in the audience said, Beginner's luck. 
Luke wiped the sweat off his brow. He appraised me with an entirely new interest. Maybe, he said, but I wonder what Percy could do with a balanced sword. Frankly, you know, we're going to take a quick chatter break here, but the more I read this, especially this chapter so far, the more I kind of want to read the Redwall series. I kind of want to read the Redwall series. That sounds like a lot of fun. It's just this nice, like, very comforting pastoral thing. And if y'all have never read Redwall, boy, it is just like, it is like a, it is like a hot chocolate. It is a little on the younger side, but it is fantastic. So we have some new clues here. All right, some new clues as to who Percy's father might be. Um, let's talk a little bit about his new skills that he's picked up. We know some skills he doesn't have. Doesn't appear he's got much in the way of metalworking. Not super quick on his feet. Not a great archer. So maybe Hephaestus, Apollo, maybe not so much. Yeah, maybe not so much. He doesn't seem like it right now. But what we are finding here is that canoeing, I guess, is on the list. And again, if, if this is somebody who has defeated the Minotaur, but their big skill is canoeing, that does seem a little off, doesn't it? And then we get into the sword fighting ring, which is this little, uh, this little arena where we are watching as Percy actually holds his own. <laughs> Sparkle of Good says, when you look at it all on the whole, Percy is pretty slow if he doesn't see it yet. It does seem like you would at least be making guesses at this point, right? And maybe Percy is indeed doing so. But I think between all of this and maybe maybe a little hint from, you know, something that gives him strength before his, his fight here, we may have a pretty clear idea of who Percy's parent could be. Could be. Friday afternoon, I was sitting with Grover at the lake. Resting from a near-death experience on the climbing wall, Grover had scampered to the top like a mountain goat, but the lava had almost gotten me. My shirt had smoking holes in it. The hairs had been singed off my arms. We sat on the pier, watching the naiads do underwater basket weaving until I got up the nerve to ask Grover how his conversation had gone with Mr. D. His face turned a sickly shade of yellow. Fine, he said. Just great. So your career is still on track? He glanced at me nervously. Karen told you that I want a searcher's license? Well, no. I had no idea what a searcher's license was, but it didn't seem like the right time to ask. He just said that you got big plans, you know? That you needed credit for completing the keeper's assignment. So, well, did you get it? Grover looked down at the naiads. Mr. D's suspended judgment. He said that I hadn't failed or succeeded with you yet, so our fates are still tied together. If you got a quest and I went along to protect you and we both came back alive, then maybe he would consider the job complete. My spirits lifted. Well, that's not so bad, right? <laughs> he might as well have transferred me to stable cleaning duty. The chances of you getting a quest... And even if you did, why would you want me along? What? What? Of course I'd want you along. Grover stared glumly into the water. Basket weaving. It must be nice to have a useful skill. 
I tried to reassure him he had lots of talents, but that just made him look more miserable. We talked about canoeing and swordplay for a while, then debated the pros and cons of different gods. Finally, I asked him about the four empty cabins. Oh, number eight, the silver one, belongs to Artemis, he said. She vowed to be a maiden forever, so of course no kids. The cabin is, you know, uh, honorary. If she didn't have one, she'd be mad. Okay, but the other three, those ones at the end, are those the big three? Grover tensed. We were getting close to a touchy subject. Uh, no, one of them, number two, is Hera's, he said. That's another honorary thing. Hera is the goddess of marriage, so of course she wouldn't go around having affairs with mortals. That's her husband's job. When we say the big three, we mean the three powerful brothers, the sons of Kronos. Zeus, Poseidon, Hades. Right. You know, after the great battle with the Titans, they took over the world from their dad and drew lots to decide who got what. Zeus got the sky, I remembered. Poseidon got the sea, Hades the underworld. Mm-hmm. Hades doesn't have a cabin here. No, he doesn't have a throne on Olympus either. He sort of does his own thing down in the underworld. If he did have a cabin here... Grover shuddered. Well, it, it wouldn't be pleasant. Let's leave it at that. But Zeus and Poseidon, they both had like a bazillion kids in the myths. Why are their cabins empty? Grover shifted his hooves uncomfortably. Uh, about sixty years ago, after World War Two, the Big Three agreed that they couldn't sire, they wouldn't sire any more heroes. Their children were just too powerful. They were affecting the course of human events too much, causing too much carnage. World War Two, you know, was basically a fight between the sons of Zeus and Poseidon on one side, and the sons of Hades on the other. The winning side, Zeus and Poseidon, made Hades swear an oath with them. No more affairs with mortal women. They all swore on the river Styx. Thunder boomed. I said, I said, That's the most serious oath you can make. Grover nodded. And the brothers kept their word? No kids? Grover's face darkened. Seventeen years ago... Zeus fell off the wagon. There was this TV starlet with big fluffy 80s hairdo. He just couldn't help himself. When the child was born, a little girl named Talia. Well, the, the river sticks is serious about the promises. Zeus got himself off easy because he's immortal, but he brought a terrible fate on his daughter. But that's not fair. It wasn't the little girl's fault. Grover hesitated. Percy... Children of the Big Three have powers greater than the other half-bloods. They've got a stronger aura. Their scent attracts monsters. When Hades found out about the girl, he was not too happy about Zeus breaking his oath. Hades let the worst monsters out of Tartarus to torment Talia. A satyr was assigned to be her keeper when she was twelve, but there was nothing that he could do. He tried to escort her here with a couple of other half-bloods that she had befriended. They almost made it. They got all the way to the top of that hill. 
He pointed across the valley, to the pine tree where I'd fought the Minotaur. All three kindly ones were after them, along with a horde of hellhounds. They were about to be overrun when Talia told her satyr to take the other two half-bloods to safety while she held off the monsters. She was wounded and tired, and she didn't want to live like a hunted animal. The satyr didn't want to leave her, but he couldn't change her mind, and he had to protect the others, so Talia made her final stand alone at the top of that hill. As she died, Zeus took pity on her. He turned her into that pine tree. Her spirit still helps protect the borders of the valley. That's why the hill is called Half-Blood Hill. I stared at the pine in the distance. The story made me feel hollow and guilty, too. A girl my age had sacrificed herself to save her friends. She had faced a whole army of monsters. Next to that, my victory over the Minotaur didn't seem like much. I wondered, if I had acted differently, could I have saved my mother? Grover, I said, have heroes really gone on quests to the underworld? Sometimes, he said. Orpheus, Hercules, Houdini. And have they ever returned somebody from the dead? No, never. Orpheus came close. Percy, you're not seriously thinking. No, I lied. I was just wondering. So, a satyr is always assigned a god, a demigod, huh? Grover studied me warily. I hadn't persuaded him that I'd really dropped the underworld idea. Not always. We go we go undercover at a lot of schools. We try to sniff out the half-bloods who have the makings of great heroes. If we find one with a very strong aura, like a child of the big three, we alert Chiron. He tries to keep an eye on them, since they could cause really huge problems. And you found me. Cowan said you thought I might be something special. Grover looked as though I'd just led him into a trap. I didn't. Uh, I... Listen, don't think like that. If you were, you know, you'd never ever be allowed on a quest, and I would never get my license. You're probably a child of Hermes, or maybe even one of the minor gods like Nemesis, the god of revenge. Don't worry, okay? I got the idea he was reassuring himself more than me. That night, after dinner, there was a lot more excitement than usual. A really quick one. So, uh, finding out more and more. It seems like there are some pretty serious implications to being chosen as a specific... Well, I guess you're not chosen. You're just born with it, and then you find out later. Pretty serious implications to being one of the children of the big three, right? So, we know now what that means. Uh, and we've got some explanations for some of these empty cabins. We know that Hera, H-E-R-A, goddess of marriage. We know that, you know, hers is empty because she doesn't run around having children every which way. Um, like some of these other goons do. It seems like Zeus, Poseidon, and uh, Hades, however. There's something specific 
it seems that at some point, World War II-ish, um, which apparently was a, a battle between the, the sort of the children of Hades and the children of Zeus and Poseidon. It seems like at some point there, they made this pact, this oath, that none of the three of them were going to sire any more children. None of the three of them were going to have any more children with mortals here. So, they don't. Um, except Zeus slips. Makes a bad decision. Breaks the oath. Uh, has a child named Talia. And Talia, T-H-A-L-I-A, Talia is, well, is, is kind of unprecedented, right? Because at, at, earlier there was some rivalry, but it didn't come down to this like being hunted. And Talia, uh, being the first child who reflects the broken pact, well, she is hunted. Uh, Hades sends some of the darkest monsters of the underworld after her, and her life is pretty miserable. But she tries to get here to this, this camp, and that is why that is Half-Blood Hill. That is why Camp Half-Blood is kind of formed up here. Um, because as Talia is dying, Zeus took some pity on her and turned her into a tree, which, you know, is that the way that you want to go? I don't know. But um, lots of, lots of again, kind of half answers here. Uh, but I want you all to be thinking as we move forward about what importance these things all have to Percy, of course. Um, but think about the importance that this quest idea has for him as well. We just, we just sort of blew wide open this idea that Percy has something in mind. Percy has a, a, a mission of his own in mind involving possibly, well, going to the underworld. Keep an eye on this. How does Percy prepare for such a thing? What is this going to mean for Percy, especially considering he's got no idea yet who his sort of, well, who his father is? Keep it in mind. Let's see how we do here. At last, it was time for Capture the Flag. When the plates were cleared away, the conch horn sounded, and we all stood at our tables. Campers yelled and cheered as Annabeth and two of her siblings ran into the pavilion carrying a silk banner. It was about ten feet long, glistening gray with a painting of a barn owl above an olive tree. From the opposite side of the pavilion, Clarice and her buddies ran in with another banner, of identical size but gaudy red, painted with a bloody spear and a boar's head. I turned to Luke and yelled over the noise, those are the flags? Yeah. Ares and Athena always lead the teams? Not always, he said, but often. So if another cabin captures one, what do you do, repaint the flag? He grinned. You'll see. First we gotta get one. Whose side are we on? He gave me a sly look as if he knew something I didn't. The scar on his face made him look almost evil in the torchlight. We've made a temporary alliance with Athena. Tonight, we get the flag from Ares, and you are going to help. The teams were announced. Athena had made an alliance with Apollo and Hermes, the two biggest cabins. Apparently, privileges had been traded, shower times, chore schedules, the best slots for activities, in order to win support. Ares had allied themselves with everybody else. Dionysus, Demeter, Aphrodite, and Hephaestus. From what I had seen, Dionysus's kids were actually good athletes, but there were only two of them. Demeter's kids had the edge with nature skills and outdoor stuff, but they weren't very aggressive. Aphrodite's sons and daughters I wasn't too worried about. They mostly sat every activity out and checked their reflections in the lake and did their hair and gossiped. Hephaestus's kids weren't pretty, and there were only four of them, but they were big and burly from working in the metal shop all day. 
they might be a problem. That, of course, left Ares's cabin. A dozen of the biggest, ugliest, meanest kids on Long Island. Or anywhere else on the planet. Chiron hammered his hoof on the marble. Heroes, he announced. You know the rules. The creek is the boundary line. The entire forest is fair game. All magic items are allowed. The banner must be prominently displayed and have no more than two guards. Prisoners may be disarmed, but they may not be bound or gagged. No killing or maiming is allowed. I will serve as referee and battlefield medic. Arm yourselves! He spread his hands, and the tables were suddenly covered with equipment. Helmets, bronze swords, spears, oxhide shields coated in metal. Whoa, I said. We're really supposed to use these? Luke looked at me as if I were crazy. Well, unless you want to get skewered by your friends in Cabin 5. Here, Chiron thought that these would fit. You'll be on Border Patrol. My shield was the size of an NBA backboard with a big caduceus in the middle. It weighed about a million pounds. I could have snowboarded on it fine, but I hoped nobody seriously expected me to run fast. My helmet, like all the helmets on Athena's side, had a blue horsehair plume on top. Ares and their allies had red plumes. Annabeth yelled, Blue team, forward! We cheered and shook our swords and followed her down the path to the south woods. The red team yelled taunts at us as they headed off toward the north. I managed to catch up with Annabeth without tripping over my equipment. Hey, she kept marching. So, what's the plan? I asked. You got any magic items that you can loan me? Her hand drifted toward her pocket as if she were afraid I had stolen something. Just watch Clarice's spear, she said. You don't want that thing touching you. Otherwise, don't worry. We'll take the banner from Ares. Has Luke given you your job? Border patrol, whatever that means. It's easy. Stand by the creek, keep the reds away. Leave the rest to me. Athena always has a plan. She pushed forward, leaving me in the dust. Okay, I mumbled. Glad you wanted me on your team. It was a warm, sticky night. The woods were dark, with fireflies popping in and out of view. Annabeth stationed me next to a little creek that gurgled over some rocks, and then she and the rest of the team scattered into the trees. Standing there alone, with my big blue feathered helmet and my huge shield, I felt like an idiot. The bronze sword, like all the swords I'd tried to use, seemed balanced wrong. The leather grip pulled on my hand like a bowling ball. There was no way anybody would actually attack me, would they? I mean, Olympus had to have liability issues, right? Far away, the conch horn blew. I heard whoops and yells in the woods, the clanking of metal, kids fighting. The blue-plumed ally from Apollo raced past me like a deer, leapt through the creek, the whooped through the creek, leapt through the creek and disappeared into enemy territory. Great, I thought. I'll miss all the fun, as usual. And then I heard a sound that sent a chill up my spine. 
a low canine growl somewhere close by. I raised my shield instinctively. I had the feeling something was stalking me. And then the growling stopped. I felt the presence retreating. On the other side of the creek, the underbrush exploded. Five Ares warriors came yelling and screaming out of the dark. Cream the punk! Clarice screamed. Her ugly pig eyes glared through the slits of her helmet. She brandished a five-foot-long spear, its barbed metal tip flickering with red light. Her siblings had only the standard-issue bronze swords, not that that made me feel any better. They charged across the stream. There was no help in sight. I could run, or I could defend myself against half of the area's cabin. I managed to sidestep the first kid's foray, but these guys were not as stupid as the Minotaur. They surrounded me, and Clarice thrusted me with her spear. My shield deflected the point, but I felt a painful tingling all over my body. My hair stood on end, my shield arm went numb, and the air burned. Electricity. Her stupid spear was electric. I fell back. Another Ares guy slammed me in the chest with the butt of his sword, and I hit the dirt. They could have kicked me into jelly, but they were too busy laughing. Give my hair cut! Clarice said. Grab his hair! I managed to get to my feet. I raised my sword, but Clarice slammed it aside with her spear as sparks flew. Now both my arms felt numb. Oh, wow! Clarice said. I'm scared of this guy. Really scared! The flag is that way, I told her. I wanted to sound angry, but I was afraid it didn't come out that way. Yeah, one of her siblings said. But see, we don't care about the flag. We care about a guy who made our old cabin look stupid. You did that without my help, I told them. It probably wasn't the smartest thing to say. Two of them came at me. I backed up toward the creek, tried to raise my shield, but Clarice was too fast. Her spear stuck me straight in the ribs. If I hadn't been wearing an armored breastplate, I would have been shish-kebobbed. As it was, the electric point just about shocked my teeth out of my mouth. One of her cabin mates slashed his sword across my arm, leaving a good-sized cut. Seeing my own blood made me dizzy, warm and cold at the same time. No maiming, I managed to say. Oops, the guy said. Guess I lost my dessert privilege. He pushed me into the creek and I landed with a splash. They all laughed. I figured as soon as they were done being amused, I would die, but then something happened. The water seemed to wake up my senses, as if I just had a big bag of my mom's double espresso jelly beans. Clarice and her cabin mates came into the creek to get me, but I stood to meet them. I knew what to do. I swung the flat of my sword against the first guy's head and knocked his helmet clean off. I hit him so hard I could see his eyes vibrating as he crumpled into the water. Ugly number two and ugly number three came at me. I slammed one in the face with my shield and used my sword to shear the other guy's horsehair plume. Both of them backed up quick. Ugly number four didn't really look anxious to attack, but Clarice kept coming, the point of her spear crackling with energy. As soon as she thrust, I caught the shaft between the edge of my sword and the shield, and I snapped it like a twig. 
She screamed. You idiot! You corpse breath worm! She probably would have said worse, but I smacked her between the eyes with my sword butt and sent her tumbling backward out of the creek. Then I heard yelling. Elated screams, and I saw Luke running toward the boundary line with the red team's banner lifted high. He was flanked by a couple of Hermes guys covering his retreat and a few Apollos behind them, fighting off the Hephaestus kids. The Ares folks got up, Clarice muttering a dazed curse. Tricks! she shouted. It was a trick! They staggered after Luke, but it was too late. Everybody converged on the creek as Luke crossed into friendly territory. Our side exploded into cheers. The red banner shimmered and turned to silver. The boar and spear were replaced with a huge caduceus, the symbol of Cabin Eleven. Everybody on the blue team picked up Luke and started carrying him on their shoulders. Chiron cantered out from the woods and blew the conch horn. The game was over. We had won. I was about to join the celebration when Annabeth's voice, right next to me in the creek, said, Not bad, hero. I looked, but she wasn't there. Where the heck did you learn to fight like that? She asked. The air shimmered and she materialized, holding a Yankees baseball cap as if she'd just taken it off her head. I felt myself getting angry. I wasn't even fazed by the fact that she'd just been invisible. You set me up, I said. You put me here because you knew Clarice would come after me. Well, you sent Luke around the flank. You had this all figured out. Annabeth shrugged. I told you, Athena always, always has a plan. A plan to get me pulverized. I came as soon as I could. I was about to jump in, but... She shrugged. You didn't need help. Then she noticed my wounded arm. How did you do that? Sword cut, I said. What do you think? No, it was a sword cut. Look at it. The blood was gone. Where the huge cut had been, there was a long white scratch, and even that was fading. As I watched, it turned into a small scar and disappeared. I, I don't get it, I said. Annabeth was thinking hard. I could almost see the gears turning. She looked down at my feet, then at Clarice's broken spear, and then said, Step out of the water, Percy. What? Just do it. I came out of the creek and immediately felt bone-tired. My arms started to go numb again. My adrenaline rush left me. I almost fell over, but Annabeth steadied me. Oh, Dicks, she cursed. This is not good. I didn't want... I assumed it would be Zeus. Before I could ask what she meant, I heard that canine growl again, but much closer than before. A howl ripped through the forest. <coughs> the campers' cheering died instantly. Chiron shouted something in ancient Greek, which I would realize only later I had understood perfectly. Stand ready, my bow! Annabeth drew her sword. There on the rocks, just above us, was a black hound the size of a rhino, with lava-red eyes and fangs like daggers. It was looking straight at me. Nobody moved except Annabeth, who yelled, Percy, run! 
She tried to step in front of me, but the hound was too fast. It leapt over her, an enormous shadow with teeth, and it just as it hit me, I stumbled backward and felt its razor-sharp claws ripping through my armor. It was a cascade of thwacking sound, like forty pieces of paper being ripped one after the other. From the hound's neck spouted a cluster of arrows. The monster fell dead at my feet. By some miracle, I was still alive. I didn't want to look underneath the ruins of my shredded armor. My chest felt warm and wet, and I knew I was badly cut. After a second, the monster would have turned me into a hundred pounds of delicatessen meat. Chiron trotted up to us, a bow in his hand, his face grim. De Immortalis, Annabeth said. That's a hellhound from the fields of punishment. They don't... they're not supposed to... Someone summoned it, Chiron said. Someone inside the camp. Luke came over, the banner in his hand forgotten, his moment of glory gone. Clarice yelled, It's all Percy's fault! Percy summoned it! Be quiet, child, Chiron told her. We watched the body of the hellhound melt into shadow, soaking into the ground until it disappeared. You're wounded, Annabeth told me. Quick, Percy, get in the water. Uh, I'm okay. No, you're not, she said. Chiron, watch this. I was too tired to argue. I stepped back into the creek, the whole camp gathering around me. Instantly, I felt better. I could feel the cuts on my chest closing up. Some of the campers gasped. Look, I... I don't know why, I said, trying to apologize. I'm sorry. But they weren't watching my wounds heal. They were staring at something above my head. Percy, Annabeth said, pointing. Um. By the time I looked up, the sign was already fading. But I could make out the hologram of green light, spinning and gleaming. A three-tipped spear. A trident. Your... Your father, Annabeth murmured. This is really not good. It is determined, Chiron announced. All around me, campers started kneeling. Even the Ares cabin, though they didn't look happy about it. My father? I asked, completely bewildered. Poseidon, said Chiron. Earthshaker, Stormbringer, father of horses. Hail Perseus Jackson, son of the sea god. And there it is, everyone. <laughs> Tuna said, I forgot about the horses. Everyone, I think we had a pretty clean idea coming into that. What exactly was going to be, you know, who exactly was going to 
claim Percy, but we're starting to find out now, you know, as we found out during earlier in this chapter and in the chapter previous, this might be a bigger deal than even Percy realizes, right? A couple of things to to quickly note here uh, that, that Percy has never experienced in his life, right? Uh, first of all, all these campers bowing to him, that, well, kneeling, I should say, kneeling in front of him, um, still a sign of like deference and respect. Uh, this is a big deal and maybe not entirely in a good way. Um, it seems like, you know, it might keep the Ares cabin off his back a little bit, but we know this is kind of bad news, right? Uh, we know that Poseidon is one of the three gods who is not supposed to have children. And it seemed like, well, Talia, that story did not end well. The child of Poseidon. What is this going to mean going forward? And and why is it that uh, that Annabeth seems very, very concerned about this? Uh, having said, like, having hoped it would be Zeus or something like that. Well, hmm. It seems there are bigger things at play than even we understand still. Um, we know that there are strange things going on, but once again, we're just compounding the questions. And of course, this being early in a book series, uh, of course, that is how it's going to go. But, you know, I think it's I think it's it's fun to sort of analyze this. At least I think it's fun um, to, to consider this and consider, you know, the ways in which some of these these genres have patterns that we can recognize. Right. As we as we're here in the beginning, it's a lot of mystery. It's a lot of confusion, um, and uh, generally, especially in the ones that we've read so far, it kicks off with some big major event, like Percy losing his mother. We kick off with something big, and it's a lot of confusion. It's a lot of you know trying to trying to understand what precisely is happening in the world around me. And I think we can look at this as one of the things that that has made these books resonate so much with people. Um, Y'all might not have a great like great reference point for this, but my understanding is that prior to um, Harry Potter, there wasn't really this wasn't a really big reading demographic. A lot of book. A lot of books. A lot of books weren't written for younger folks. They were written for you know for adults, and there wasn't a lot to to access here. But think about what a book like this and a book like Harry. Some of these, uh, like just Harry, you know the books Harry, like the Harry Potter books. Some of these things are are bringing a a reading experience that we have not had before, and something that was was and is really valuable to longer, younger folks, which is this attitude of total confusion. And trying to navigate that, right? But this this total confusion, it's not something that never shows up elsewhere. But if we think about the other instances of like big things happening to people in some of the books that aren't written for this for this crowd, for this demographic of people, for the for 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 kids who are growing up. Think about things like uh well, like some of the ones we've read so far. Uh yes, um in, in The Great Gatsby, we're experiencing, you know, Nick Carraway experiencing a totally new uh, way of living, right? A totally new lifestyle with, with Gatsby and with the people that he's, that Gatsby surrounds himself with. But we, we don't get as much, you know, confusion as to Nick's own place in the world. It's simply this confusion as to like, what are the customs? How do things really work uh, on a more nuanced level? Um, in, uh, in in the Hobbit, I would consider it a great example of someone who has gone off on an adventure, and there is there's certainly this element of of not feeling self assured at this, but just the weight of confusion of not understanding the world around you and wishing that you could and feeling like maybe you should be able to and you just can't. This is all 
this is all important, right? And this is something that has made it really resonate with people in this in this age group. Um, and of course, I think a lot you know a lot of us have connected to it beyond that because, in some instances, they've got a lot more to offer than just that initial draw. But but I want to I want to talk specifically about that that element of echoing what it is like to try and grow up, echoing the confusion of of getting a little bit older, starting to barely understand the world around you. It feels like you get big answers that just bring up more questions, um, much in the same way that we get here. And with Harry Potter, you know, uh, the big the big answers here are magic is real in the world in Harry Potter. Um, in this, it's uh, the Greek mythology is alive and well underneath everyday life. They're big answers. And we feel like we get these broad strokes things as 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 kids, as we're growing up. And yet they just seem to bring up more questions. It never seems like okay, we never get this like, okay, now I get it. We never get that relief, that moment. Um, and so these books have done something something really interesting, which is to bring this whole new genre that echoes those feelings, that, that addresses those feelings of, I simply don't understand the world around me. I wish I did. I'm trying to. I'm doing my best here. But I don't. And and these this, this genre has done an excellent job of exploring that through these different characters. Certainly we can see how Percy, with every new answer he gets, is simply more confused. Right? This he's found okay, so Poseidon is his dad, right? Think about think about the major questions in his life that that answered, and now think about the major parts of his life that have just become questions. Who's his dad? Poseidon. Okay, so that would explain a couple of things. It would explain some water stuff. It would explain, you know, why he went off to sea and never came back. It would explain, you know, a few other things. Well, let me run through this enormous list of new questions that we've got. What does this mean for Percy's future? Why have why do all these other gods, all the all these other demigods, seem to be relating to him like this now? They're kneeling in front of him. What? Um, what is his? How is his relationship going to change with basically each and every person he's looking at here? Um, what does this mean for his position at the camp? This place that he is suddenly and finally started to be able to call kind of home. He enjoyed it. He was finally feeling like he had kind of a place. What does it mean for that? And, you know, we've got so many more questions now. Hogwarts Hippie says, Chapter 8 is my favorite so far. Thank you, Sam. Okay, gotta finish my drive. Hope everyone has a wonderful night and weekend. Much love. Much love to you as well, Hogwarts Hippie. I hope, you've had, have, I hope you have a fantastic one. Thank you very, very much for joining us. Uh, Rowlett says, So I'm not sure if this gets answered. If it does, feel free to ignore me. Did the trident appear over Percy's head because Poseidon claimed him? Or because the camp was some uh, has some magic that figured it out? Well, um... I think we're going to get more answers on this later on, but for right now, it is kind of hard to tell, right? It doesn't say, Chiron doesn't say you have been claimed. It just says it is determined. So, you know, as, as of this point in the, in the book, we're not certain. We're not certain. We're not certain whether it's, it's Poseidon himself that claimed Percy or whether it is the camp that has somehow identified Percy rightly. We do know Chiron's sure. There's no, there's no going back from this. It sounds like Chiron is very confident uh, because he makes the proclamation before everyone. Um, and there is that bit of confirmation, right? The hellhound that showed up. This is the hellhound would only be would be most attracted to most most fiercely chasing after somebody whose aura is the strongest. And these the the big three Poseidon, uh, Zeus, and Hades. Theirs is. Their, their, their aura, as far as we can tell, is some of the strongest. 
as far as we've heard so far. Lisa says, okay, the dream of horse and eagle. Who represents eagle since we know Percy's dad was the horse? Um, and Rowlett answers, eagle is generally Zeus. Y'all, y'all are getting good at this. This is the stuff I like. Rowlett and Lisa putting the pieces together. Percy did indeed have a strange dream, right? A few chapters ago, in which there's a horse doing battle with an eagle. Why would these two creatures fight one another? They've got no reason to. This all well, all well of voice, you know, laughs uh, somewhere in the background. Something to, keep in, something to keep in mind. I'm not going to delve in too deep to that, but some interesting thoughts there. Some very, very interesting thoughts. Woodson says, but someone let the hell how in. There's an enemy on the inside. Yes, Chiron. Uh, I believe it's Chiron specifically that says so. Um, but yeah, someone would have to, here we go, the direct quote. Uh, and by the way, I've started doing this during Vintage Sidecar. I don't know if I've introduced it here. This just means while I hold this up, it means that we are currently on a direct quote from the book, from the text. Okay. Um, Someone summoned it, Chiron said. Someone inside the camp. Hmm. There is indeed, there's an enemy somewhere within. I think we've got some obvious suspects, right? We know we know some folks who would not be happy about Percy's arrival here. Who, who have not enjoyed Percy's time here at camp. An interesting question. Uh, so... A lot of questions. It's so tough to like go in and analyze these books uh, at, at any greater sort of like plot level or thematic level because it gets us into some some really deep trouble with spoilers. Um, so instead, I want to talk really quickly. I think we've done a we've had a good discussion about our protagonist, right? We've talked about Percy and the ways that he is sort of um, uh, basically the the confusion, right? The confusion that Percy is feeling, looking around the world, trying to understand it better, and just having a simply a tough time doing so. Um, Let's talk about any themes that are emerging here. I want to talk about some themes because themes are really the spot where I have the most fun. And I think we can talk about at least one that I can think of without really delving too deeply into, um, uh, into spoiler territory. The theme of... And we're going to expand on this and refine this idea as we continue to read it. But this theme of conflict and of, of factionalism and of kind of uh, tribalism and choosing sides and having those sides be uh, sort of inherently opposing one another. Let's keep watching that, right? It seems to be totally baked into this world, right? It seems like it seems like it just sort of comes with the territory of there being these Greek gods. It seems like these alliances and and um, uh, you know looking at, at at other demigods and and thinking that well because of who your father is and because of who my mother is, we have you know our sides are kind of determined for us and we're going to have to just sort of live with that and now we're fighting. Um, not only that, but but tied into that idea is it's not it's not just factionalism, but it's sort of a predetermined factionalism, right? And with that, I want to I want to bring up this idea of of destiny. We're going to be obviously seeing a lot more about this, much in the same way that we did during Harry Potter. But this idea of destiny, this idea that that something is already decided that hasn't happened yet. I think I want you to keep an eye on the way that. 
the characters especially, and I, I tend to be really character focused when I think about books, when I think about stories. I'm 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 super. I'm most tuned in with how characters interact with all these various things. More so, I would say than than the you know the, the plot lines and and the themes and such. I would say the characters are really really where I where I tune in the most. Have a good one, Supin. I'll see you later. Watch all of our characters and watch the way that they interact with this destiny, right? With the things that have already been seemingly decided for them. One of the big ones that I think will be the, the easiest to keep an eye on, the one that I want you to sort of look at first and then extrapolate out from there, is their, their affiliation with a particular god or goddess. And I'll probably say god just as a gender neutral term um, in, in many instances. Um, uh, you know the, the 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 god Zeus, the god Hera, etc. Um, but as we are, as we're as we're looking at all these different characters, think about the way that their destiny um, determines the things that they do, and think about the way that those sort of balances out with one another. Right? Think about the ways that you know you might be drawn to a you, you might believe that you have a path that is set and so you inevitably head toward it you might believe it's kind of out of your control if you've got a destiny and you sort of head toward it but think about folks like Clarice who is sort of destined to be this kind of warring individual think about the ways that she is kind of reacting to that destiny it seems like she is choosing to embrace it right and thereby with her own actions she is continuing to head toward that destiny in a way that maybe the destiny doesn't control, it's just her own reaction to understanding her destiny. We've learned that there is something called an oracle. And for those of you who are not familiar with, with you know, Greek Greek literature, the oracle, there the, the main purpose of an oracle, whether it's the the like super specific one or just an oracle in general, the general meaning there is it's something that predicts fortunes. Or, or destinies, essentially. It, it is going to spit out a destiny for someone in some way. Keep an eye on some of these things. They're going to get more complex and much more interesting to watch. Um, but, you know, I, I think you can start with the destiny that's determined by who your parent is in this, in who, who, which, which God you're associated with. Keep an eye on that destiny. Keep an eye on and the, way, the, the ways that especially people react to it. Charlie Clear says, Annabeth seems to accept destiny and chases it. Luke seems to brush off her eagerness and maybe wants to challenge it. It certainly doesn't seem like Luke is nearly as faithful in the system as Annabeth is. Annabeth seems to have this idea. She uses a lot of kind of stuff that I can imagine would be kind of buzzwords here, right? Quests. Uh, and, uh, you know, Athena having a, having a plan. Um, this This quest idea, I think, is a big buzzword that you know, I don't, I don't know if Luke would use it very often. Certainly not in earnest. You know, Luke, Luke sort of looks, looks at the thing and says, you know, he, he seems kind of laissez-faire, which means sort of what will happen will happen. Say la vie, you know, uh, I'm just going to chill and, and sort of watch it go. That seems like kind of his attitude. Um, and then we see someone like Annabeth, who seems to be really invested in the system, the system of oracles and uh, quests and all this. Keep an eye on these characters. I definitely want to track down these these uh, these themes some more and add some more refinement to our understanding of them. Uh, and of course, the whole while, keep an eye on our characters as well. As I mentioned, the last Friday of this month, Lord of the Mines. A friendly, maybe, a competition, definitely. 
uh, among some pit crew goons in a Minecraft world of our own creation. We are playing Survival Island. The first Lord of the Mines is Survival Island. We will probably be doing more Survival Islands in the future, but we've got a bunch of different ideas for different Lord of the Mines games to be playing, um, including like competitive builds and sort of like person versus person stuff. Yes. Yes. Some, some trips, some adventures. Um, it is going to be a fantastic time, and I hope you will all join us there. Uh, everyone, it's been wonderful. Have a great night, y'all. I'll see you later. Bye-bye.